0: You all know these days uh, I've been uh, traveling a little bit. I've still got a couple of trips ahead of me. And uh, so it is a bit chaotic. I was just telling Brian Bartlett how all routines are thrown out the window and, and uh, the temptation is to give up on the things that, that are necessary. Yet, those things must be done. But when I go on a trip, there's a habit, I suppose, that maybe, maybe most men, uh, probably many of the ladies, if you travel much, and you have children, you have this, this practice that is to give departing commands to your kids, especially. So before we walk out the door, we may say something like, all right, kids, listen to your mom. Be good. Do the things that you're supposed to do. Be kind to your siblings. You know what I'm talking about. And we do this sort of informally, and that's what we see Paul doing at the end of this letter. It's not like he has come to the end. Don't hear me saying, like, he's come to the end, and he's just trying to scramble to find some things to say to them as a, you know, last bit of encouragement. I think these are calculated by the Holy Spirit, statements given to the church at Thessalonica, in order to see their growth continue when Paul wasn't going to be there, at least for the time being. So he gives these commands. For Paul, this is his heart's desire, that these people would grow, that these essentials that he's writing, as it flows through the tip of his pen, he's carried along by the Holy Spirit All of these imperatives are to be taken by these people, not as a, oh, he's just closing his letter. No, as some specific things he leaves you with. Do these things. He emphasizes these things. Now, as we walk through the text today, I hope you'll be able to see the importance of each of these, that that importance will become evident as we consider them. But let's read for now. I'm going to read in conjunction with the previous text that uh, Cal preached to you last week. So we're going to start in verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, if you're not already there. 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to begin in verse 12. We're going to go through verse 22. He says, We ask you, brothers, for today. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray once more. Father, we plead for your help again. Open up our eyes and ears, our hearts, that we may be transformed by the word this morning. Please don't let us, as we prayed earlier, deceive ourselves into thinking that a mental understanding is true understanding. That we have engaged our intellect, but not our spirit, not our soul, not our actions. Help us to truly experience that transformation that comes by the look at Christ. And we pray in his name, amen. Our title this morning is Responsibility Emphasized. And yeah, it's a terrible title. It's terrible. It's what it is. I didn't know what to say, so that's what I said. The theme, though, is more thoughtful. The theme our responsibility in the Christian life lifts us above our circumstances and strengthens our community of believers. Our responsibility in the Christian life lifts us above circumstances and strengthens our community of believers. And I hope you see that readily in the text, and we'll break it down even more clear as we go. I want to give you two areas of emphasis. So this is the emphasis of Paul as he's coming to the conclusion of the letter. All these commands in this whole section. I want to give you two areas of emphasis. First, the Christian life in God's will. The Christian life in God's will. So I love texts like this because, guess what? I get to tell you right here from the Word of God... What God's will is for your life. You've probably asked the question, even recently, in so many different ways, you can ask, what is the will of God for me? What am I supposed to do here? What decision do I make here? Well, I'm telling you today on these verses, this is God's will. This is God's will. It's not the first time that Paul has said this to these people. In chapter four, Paul said, this is the will of God, your sanctification." It's God's will that you grow in Christ's likeness, always casting off the old man, always putting on the new man in him. And in that text, he showed that Christian sanctification, becoming holy like God, who is holy, means that we abstain from sexual immorality. That's chapter 4. He went explicitly that direction. Now here, at the end of chapter 5, the will of God is once again put in simple terms for us, Terms that we can understand easily, terms that we can translate to practice right now. You know, when it comes to God's will, when it comes to the events of life and the things that come our way and the things we didn't plan for and the uncertainties and you know, all those things that you're experiencing right now. When we encounter those things, we have this sense of being out of control. It bothers us that we can't manipulate the circumstances to do what we want to do. And we begin to run with all of our thoughts about what the solution is, and we we try to solve the problem. I'm that guy, like, like I want to solve the problem immediately. I offer solutions. Some of y'all have received counsel from me. It was poor counsel (laughs) because I wanted to give you an answer quick when I should have said, you know, I don't know yet. It makes us uncomfortable to admit when we are out of control. You think about the believers in Thessalonica here. They are subject to persecution. They're subject to uncertainty. They don't know what's going to happen to them. They don't know what's going to happen to their church. And Paul shows us a helpful distinction here. It's a helpful distinction as we look at the text there is, we could, we could say God's will uh, works in two different ways here. There is God's revealed will, all right? That is the things that he has told you in his word you ought to do. You ought to obey the revealed will of God. And then there's the hidden will of God. There's that hidden will that only he knows about that decision. Only he knows about where you ought to go to school. Only he knows about who you ought to marry. And all these things, you're wishing that You could just get insight into the mind of God and know certain things that you simply can't know. Revealed and hidden will. It's that hidden will that makes us feel out of control. And in fact, you are not in control. But there's a there's a poor pattern of Christian living that develops here. We desire, look look at it this way, look at it this way, all right? Hidden will. We desire to have control over the things that we can't know while at the same time neglecting the things that we have been told to do. We desire that control over the things that are hidden while we live defeated in the things that we can control. You know what you can control? Your joy Your prayer, your thanksgiving, right there in the text. And when we get hit with the uncertainty of the future, I think about myself, my future, my family's future, the church's future, we can get swallowed up by the stress and anxiety about these things that only God can know. Yet, I know in my life what he has explicitly told me to do gets ignored. I surrender my joy. I abandon my prayers. And I begin on this path of grumbling and complaining to God. And let's be honest, I know you've got a similar pattern that emerges in your life. Think about the thing that you couldn't control this week, the thing that caused you to be anxious. Did you spend hours, maybe even days, trying to wrestle control from the hands of God, trying to impose your will to force your solution? In the meantime, let me ask, how was your joy? Uh, Tell me, in the meantime, were you praying constantly? Did you abound in thanksgiving? Of course not. You have disregarded the will of God for your life because you seek the things that you cannot know. Don't miss the fact that these are commands that Paul writes to us through the Holy Spirit and he gives to these Thessalonians and us today. Now, let's talk about these. There's three explicit imperatives of God's will right here. I mentioned them. Three explicit imperatives of God's will. And and this is one of those like texts of preaching where um, those of you who have had those conversations recently like on the midweek study of interpretation, this is where it's so clear. Like when you look at the Bible, the Word of God, and you can see, oh yeah, the sermon is exactly what he's saying right there. This is, one of those, this is one of those texts. It's just easy. It's easy to figure out. He gives us these three explicit imperatives of God's will. First, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Biblically, the call to rejoice often comes in the face of suffering. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice as I suffer for you, Paul says to the Colossians. 2 Corinthians 6.10, although saddened, we were always rejoicing. See, there's, there's the suffering and there's the, the rejoicing. You know, rejoicing is one of the most unique characteristics of the Christian life. Why is that? Because everybody in the world knows something about suffering. They have experienced pain. But you know what they don't have? They don't have the opportunity to rejoice in eternal things. So what do we do, Christian? We rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our chains. We rejoice in our diagnoses. We rejoice in rejection. When we have been rejected, we rejoice in persecution. We rejoice in hardship because it is what we do as Christians. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Is it because we're a little bit crazy? No. Of course not. We might be a little bit crazy, but that's not the reason. Is it because we're out of touch with reality? Ah, uh, Christians just they just want to live in a fantasy world. No. No, this is what the hostile children of darkness would have you think. We rejoice. We rejoice because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who thus frees us from momentary captivity to circumstances and outcomes. We rejoice that we are in Christ and the Holy Spirit testifies that to us. We rejoice that all of our sins are forgiven because of his vicarious death on the cross and his resurrection. We rejoice that we are loved by God and his people We rejoice that our place is reserved with Jesus for us, a place which we will inhabit forever. So by the help of God, in our rejoicing, we set our minds on God and bring our whole self back under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'll submit to you this. Rejoicing is a means of gaining control, but it's not the control that your flesh wants. Rejoicing is a means not to control your circumstances or control your outcomes or control others or control God. Hebert says it well, a spirit-prompted attitude of rejoicing unlocks the whole of a believer's nature. It influences his outward conduct and stimulates his affections and desires. So rejoicing is the path to regain control of your emotions, to rein in your racing mind. It's a, a way to reset yourself toward God, a way from the, what's going on around you, but is our response is it is it like we're supposed to be like Peter Pan, like we just we just think happy thoughts? Is that is that what it is? Do we we just we just got to think on happy thoughts? No, no, no. I would argue that it's probably your original thoughts that are part of the problem. You probably need something. In fact, I would encourage you, you do need something outside of yourself to lay that foundation of rejoicing. So you need that biblical truth. And I know you're just like me. In the moments when you need to hear it most, you do not want in any way to open up the Word of God and read it. To be honest, you're having the worst day. Somebody just did something to you. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? All the circumstances you can imagine, and you know what? You want to hold on to that bitterness and anger rather than open up the Bible and rejoice. I don't know what that is. If there's nothing else that tells you just how crooked you are, I think that's it right there. The thing you need the most is the thing you refuse to do in the moment. We need that biblical truth. We need those songs, don't we? You know, one thing I appreciated about. Miss Dozier was her singing. She didn't care what people thought of her, she sang all the time. She's, uh, from what I hear, she was singing in the hospital bed when her mind was just all over the place, she would start singing. And you know what? That comes from a life that practices rejoicing singing the things you know to be true. Maybe it's those godly friends that you need to get around you, those gospel conversations that push you to rejoicing. Remember, this is God's will. Rejoice always. It comes to you as a command. Rejoice. And again, from Hebert, God doesn't command things from us that we have no ability to do. So, folks, don't write off God's will this morning. Don't pretend like you don't have a reason to rejoice and no way to return all of you, your whole self, back toward the Lord Jesus. He gives another command, though, that keeps us going. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. I told Aaron this morning that uh, as I was in the shower, I was like, this sermon probably deserves like a whole series honestly so many things that we won't get to talk about rejoice always secondly pray without ceasing the most obvious explanation of this text is that it doesn't mean that we ought to engage in uninterrupted prayer at all times understand this otherwise you'd be disobedient right now by listening to a sermon and not praying If that were true, then you would be sinning while you sleep because you're not praying. In fact, Paul would have been in sin when he preached because in those moments he was not praying. So rather the emphasis is to live in constant communion with God where the lines of communication are always open. And in every circumstance, we ought to take advantage of our opportunity to pray. I know you were gripped by the the news of what happened in Uvalde this these recent days. Was your first response to pray? Was your was your knee-jerk? Was it to go to the Lord? And I'm not even just saying that you should pray. I would say specifically, right there in that moment, we're practicing all the things that we learned in Jeremiah. You lament. That moment is not the time when you start talking about your solutions. That moment is where you lament. You go to God and you shed tears and your heart broken over the condition of the world, your heart broken over the things that He doesn't want, the things that oppose Him. We lament, we grieve, but I think we short sell prayer. When we think of it only as asking God for things. When it says pray constantly, does that mean that, oh man, I got to come up with more things to ask for, more words to say to God than what I'm already doing? No, that's exhausting. No. I don't know about you, but my best relationships are not built primarily on asking for things. (laughs) I think about it with my kids. Like, I want them to ask me for things. I want them to believe that I'm going to provide things for them. But you know what I want more than that? I want them to, like, want me to be around. (laughs) Every parent, I think, has been in that boat, right? No, it needs to be more than that. Our relationships can't be built on asking for things. Even though I know my friends would give me whatever I needed and I would do the same for them if I could... And it's not commanding you, prayer, or praying constantly, praying without season. It's not commanding you to rattle off long, wordy prayers to God. It's about a reverent attitude of fellowship and communion, communion with God. In the moments where lament and grief are appropriate, like this week, immediately take it before God. What would it look like for you to just sit before our Heavenly Father, surrendering your fleshly notions about the situations to Him, lament, and grieve? Somebody has described well, uh, praying without ceasing, kind of like a, a hacking cough, And that stuck with me. I heard that years and years ago. You know when you have that cough that the least little bit of the tickle in your throat causes you to cough. It's an involuntary response. That's how prayer ought to be with the saint. Every tickle from life causes you to go to God. And it's not just bad things. When you receive any bit of good news, turn your heart and mind to God as a Like a programmed involuntary response. Go to Him. There will be times when you don't have words, but the Spirit will plead on your behalf to the Father. Pray without ceasing. He gives a third command here in the will of God. He says, Give thanks in all things or all circumstances. Give thanks in all things. I'll submit to you that giving thanks is the remedy to grumbling and complaining. It is the cure for discontentment. It's the lift you need when circumstances drag you down and it's the sobriety that you need when the world has you high. At some risk, I'll put this in terms of card games, giving thanks is the winning hand. You follow me? Giving thanks is the the winning hand. It's the the royal flesh. It's it's what you lay on the table to end the game. Y'all know when you're playing Uno. You're playing Uno, and your opponent is about to win, but you've been hanging on to the wild draw four. Yeah? Come on, somebody is with me. You know what I'm talking about? You you got that wild draw four ready to boom, and then you're back on top. This is what happened with Paul and Silas when they went to prison. What did they do at midnight? They started singing and praising God. What happened? The doors opened. The chains were broken. The bonds were released. They said, in that moment, by the Holy Spirit, our circumstances do not control us. The enemy will not defeat us. We got the winning hand. Folks, I hope you see that Thanksgiving does the exact same for you in all your circumstances. And you say, how's that? How's that? I got a perfect answer for you. Whether you've been Thrown in prison, persecuted, pulled down, pressed hard, petering out, pushing on death's door. But you know that Romans 8.28 is true. All things. All things. All things. things. I had a professor in seminary that sat with us in class, and, and he caused us to really deal with that question right there. He said, he said, men, if your wife suddenly dies, there's nothing you can do about it. Do you mean to tell me that all things work together for your good? Why don't you wrestle with that right now? How is it that we can give thanks and rise above those undesirable circumstances? The perfect answer is, no matter what you're going through, you can know that Romans 8.28 is true. That all things, all things work together together. For the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we give thanks to God, not just in our circumstances. I would tell you, Christian, we give thanks to God for our circumstances. Because he's doing work that we can't measure. We don't even get to observe right now. But we'll celebrate for eternity with him. Now let's go back to the Thessalonians think about how impactful these imperatives would have been. They're under persecution, but they're doing well. We got the report from Timothy. They're growing, but several obstacles lie before them. God knows what they need, what his will is for them, what his will is for you. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. So we have this I hesitate to say sort of individual emphasis. These are things that you've been called to do believer as you live the Christian life in God's will. The first area. But then there's a second area that we see in this text. It is the corporate life with God's spirit. Now we're moving beyond necessarily the the individual Christian. You as a follower of Jesus now we're talking about the community. It certainly has implications in our application, but we're talking about the community at this point, the corporate life with God's Spirit. The previous commands are explicitly tied to God's will, but that doesn't mean that these commands that follow are not God's will. What follows are cautionary measures for the church as a whole to practice As one body, a covenanted community of believers, this means that it takes more than just a few leaders or a few key members to remain faithful to these commands. It takes the whole body. Y'all have heard me talk at great length about the body of Christ and what that means. And yet still so much of the body is non-functioning. I don't know how else to say it. A good portion of the body is non-functioning. I think there is spiritual significance when we call somebody an active or inactive member. Oh, well, my arm today is just inactive. It's just not working today. It's not doing anything. Taking a break, whatever. No, we don't think of our own human bodies that way. And why don't we... See the local church rise to that that beautiful image of the body. You know that feeling when you stand up and your legs are asleep and you nearly fall over. That's the church perpetually. How do you think we can accomplish the mission if people won't do their jobs? If the body parts don't work, my goodness. The local church will always struggle if its members are not actively pursuing these things as one people, one body, one in one spirit. The problem, the problem, you ready? The problem, many church folk, I'm reading this, many church folk hold the rest of the community at a distance As if the church is something over there separate from you. Our default mode is to give the community second level status underneath the individual, underneath number one. You'll never make sacrifices for the people of God if you live that way. And when I say the people of God, being the temple, how else do you make sacrifices? This results in taking a passive role. Men, passivity is a major problem for us. This results in taking a passive role in the responsibilities of the local church. This happens, I would say, a good obvious way that this happens is in our decisions as a church. And you say, oh no, is he trying to get us to come to members meetings? Yeah, I am. I went there in the middle of a sermon. (laughs) Come to members meetings. Members? function. You've been granted the privilege of the priesthood of the believers in the temple that is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And yet, it seems as though it's too burdensome for you to show up. And week after week, the temptation comes for me to quit talking about that. And then the Spirit quickens me. And I hope that On God's word, that we can champion our responsibility among the community of believers until my last breath, until your last breath. There's nothing else in the world worthy of your time and energy like the local church. It happens. In our decisions as a church, and I would, I would say maybe even worse, it happens in your discipleship. Why are you so stagnant in the faith? Is it because you, you won't share anything personal with another believer? You won't ask meaningfully for prayer, for relationships? Again, holding people at a distance. Like the church is something over there that I go to and get what I need from time to time instead of seeing. We are. We are the church. We'll keep going. There's two corporate cautions here. Two corporate cautions here. First, quench not the spirit. Quench not the spirit. Maybe a better translation is do not put out the spirit's fire. Literally, that's what it would be. Do not put out the spirit's fire. One commentator argues that the word here indicates that it was something that was already happening in Thessalonica that needed to stop. You know those folks that always got a rain on the parade? The Debbie Downer, the party pooper. That's why we invited you, right? Y'all know the song. Those folks have a field day in the life of the church. It's possible, it's possible that what he's counseling here in this letter is opposite of what was happening in Corinth. You remember in Corinth, the sign gifts were getting so exalted that the role of the spirit was actually being pushed aside for a spiritual experience. That sounds really nice, doesn't it? And the Holy Spirit wasn't involved. So Paul had to come in and bring some order there because it was getting chaotic. In this case, the opposite is happening. Any significant movement of the Spirit of God was met with the spiritual fire extinguisher. It may happen in the worship of the church. When you are prompted by the Spirit to to worship freely, and yet you restrain yourself because of because of what, what some individual might think, you extinguish your own fire in spirit sometimes. It may happen in response to God's word when you unknowingly pour, pour a, a glass of, of cold water on someone's fire for the word. It may happen various different ways. It may happen in the decisions of the church. Go back to that. Well, it's always been this way, so I'll make sure it's always staying this way. Extinguish the fire of the Spirit when we say these things and do these things. In all of these ways, many more. If something makes us uncomfortable in the life of the church, our tendency is to put out that fire. And some fire should be put out, as James says. The tongue is a fire. It'll burn up everything. You ought to put out that fire. But it's the fire that comes from the Holy Spirit that ought to be fanned into flame. It's that fire that purifies the people of God and sends them on fire. Mission quench not the spirit. And I'm hoping and praying the spirit will make some application to you individually. He says, secondly, despise not the prophecies. This is where he he concludes the rest of this under this vein of of this uh, caution. Despise not the prophecies. He gets specific as possibly a way that the spirit was being quenched among the saints and Thessalonica, that this was a recurring problem. To despise here is to reject with contempt. This happens every time you hear the elected leader that you did not vote for, right? You reject it. You write it off. You mock it. You make a meme about it, or you repost a meme about it. Prophecy here includes both foretelling... To predict future events, and forth telling, which is simply to proclaim in front of people. Many would argue that foretelling has ceased, that there is no new revelation. You can put me in that category. There's no new revelation. We have the completed Bible. The latter, the forth telling, that is the preaching that happens in the regular gathering of the church. Ephesians 4 tells us the prophetic gift was given to the church to grow the church to maturity. So in short, when the Word of God is preached faithfully and a hearer writes off that sermon, for whatever reason, it is a violation of this verse. So yes, this means that those preachers that you know turned out to be frauds, it means that you don't have a legitimate reason for rejecting the Word as it was preached by them. Yeah, you're hurt. Yeah, you're confused. Yeah, it's it's wrong. And they should have been a better example. And yeah, it's gonna take you some time to heal, but don't put your soul on the chopping block of God's authoritative word because a broken man who preaches the Bible turns out to be an actual sinner. Are you surprised? We can't despise the foretelling of God's word. So he gives this command. Don't hold in contempt what is preached from the Bible. He turns then and gives three corporate commands after these two cautions. And these three corporate commands relate closely to despise not the prophecies. First off, he says, test everything. This testing is learning the genuineness of something by examination or often through actual use. This is exactly what the Bereans did in Acts 17. They took what was preached about Jesus as being from the Spirit. They examined it against the Word of God and then they surrendered to the truth. They weren't suspicious. They didn't put the fire out. They didn't hold it in contempt. And we need that that Berean activity, that Berean practice. We need to maintain that practice of testing everything. We know not every spirit is from God, John says, 1 John 4, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, I believe that there are some among us who have the gift of discernment, but you're not using it. How will you lead the church to test everything? What does that look like in practice for you, believer? How are you using that that gift or whatever gift you may have to strengthen the church family? Stop holding the church at a distance. Take ownership. Take responsibility and test everything. He says... Two responses to this testing. First off, hold on to the good. When these matters, especially those touted as being from the Spirit, when they're tested, some will be proven good and certainly from God's Holy Spirit. Now, this this good here, uh, this is not good in terms of being beneficial. It's good in terms of intrinsic value. And that, that may not make a whole lot of difference to you right now. Here's what I would say. A spatula is good, Right? Like a spatula is good. You need the spatula when you cook. Only thing I cook really is eggs or something on the grill. So I use a spatula when I'm cooking eggs. But in the end, that spatula, it's just wood or it's just plastic. It has no intrinsic value. It may be beneficial, but there's no intrinsic value for that. But a bar of pure gold has value for what it is. When we test things and find out that they are from God, that they have eternal value, then we bring them in, we welcome them in to the life of the church, whether it's a sermon or an act of service or whatever it is. And you know, there are many trendy things that will come and go in the life of the church. We must hold on to what is good. But we want to we cling to all the spatulas and pretend like they're solid gold. Hold on to the good, the lasting, the eternal things. So many applications we can make in the life of the church, especially in the church worship. But we don't have that time. Lastly, hold on to the good, but hold off the evil. The words here are opposite. That's why I say hold on and then hold off. That is hold away, keep away from So, hold off the evil, and I would add, and its forms. And its forms. You'll see here in the same way that genuineness is proven in the good things, there are some things that prove to bring damage to whatever they touch, and we ought to hold off or hold away or keep at a distance the evil things in all their forms. We must stiff arm these things and flee from them, maybe your translation says. As we come to a conclusion, you notice here that it says every form of evil. It doesn't say that about good. Hold on to the forms of good. No. Hold off. Every form of evil. Here's what we'll say here. Evil is not always what it appears to be. The most damaging, man-centered, for instance, sermons that are preached from pulpits are not quickly identified as such because they tickle the ears. The use of a spiritual gift for another instance can easily turn inward toward self instead of outward toward edification. You know, there is no new evil under the sun. It only repackages itself in appearance. I would tell you that much of my early Christianity was was learning how to appear righteous. As long as, this is where we go wrong, this is where we go wrong. As long as the people out here, those people sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, as long as you're convinced, as you're convinced, as long as you're convinced that they think that you are good, Then you're like, well, well, maybe I, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just a good person. And week after week, we try to show each other how good we are. Is Is that what we do? Much of my early Christian life emphasized the appearance of evil over actual evil, and we're seeing that come to a reckoning in our entire convention, aren't we? If you know what's going on in the news. And I'm thankful to God that our convention asked for the investigation that has just been released. I was there at the meeting where we requested that this be done. And you know what? It's worse than most people thought it would be. But you know what we realized? There were a lot of people that had the appearance of good but were harboring evil. We want to flee evil and all its forms. We'll close. We'll close. I want to ask you as we consider these things our life in the will of God, our corporate life with God's Spirit, these commands, these essential commands, folks. I would ask would you this morning hold God's word in contempt? Would you reject what is his explicit will for you? Rejoice. Would you rejoice today? Would you, would you re-engage your communion with God through prayer? Would you return to the practice of giving thanks? This is God's will for you. Lay aside all the anxiety that you carry around every day. So easier said than done, Pastor. Oh, I know. Every week, I get out of a pit. I get out of a pit because I have to recover these things. Some weeks, not so not so well. It's possible that some of you are content to harbor evil in your hearts, and while your lives appear good to us, to the rest of us, you've convinced yourself that We're really the bar. Hey, these people think I'm good, so I'm good, right? Yet that evil is doing damage to your soul right now. I would invite you to come cast off that evil through repentance, leaving that aside for the good, intrinsically valuable gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Christ has purchased your pardon by shedding his blood at calvary he rose from the dead he's seated in victory and he commands your faith and obedience right now so how would you respond in the spirit this morning the unbeliever step one repent of sin trust in jesus Repent and believe on Him. In Him is the whole of your salvation, and it can be yours today. Let's respond with the help of the Spirit. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the commands, even the difficult ones. They're so simple, it seems. But in practice, we fall again and again. We lay aside joy when we have access to unending joy. We neglect you when we can come to you at all times. We conveniently forget all that you have done for us, especially, supremely, what you've done for us in Christ. Father, we pray that as we operate together, the community seeks to cast off all those things that that are evil in all its forms. We seek what is good, what is eternally valuable. Help us. Send your spirit to empower us in all those little ways and in the big ways that we easily recognize. Father, be honored in the life of the church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.